Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, yo, everybody. I am Diana Kander, welcoming you to my personal self-growth journey. I made this list of 49 different things that I wanted to improve about myself, and this show documents me working on one thing at a time each week, whether it's becoming a better parent, better leader, or today's episode on being a better partner in a dual career relationship. You know, before you came along in my life, I just had this bucket list of things that I wanted to learn how to do better, but I never got around to working on the list. It just seemed overwhelming to me. And I started this show as an accountability tool for myself. Before the show, I would read maybe one, two books a year. And today I'm reading a book every four or five days and getting to talk to the author. Start to finish. I'm so grateful that you have joined me on this journey, that many of you are interested in working on the same things that I am, that you're getting something out of these conversations, and that so many of you have joined our online hangout on Facebook, the Professional AF Podcast Insiders Group, where I've witnessed people ask for somebody to be an accountability partner, ask for help dealing with difficult things at work, and had a safe place to celebrate success. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And we are just getting warmed up. If you love today's episode, please share it online with your friends and please tag me so I can thank you personally. And if you haven't done so already, it would mean so much to me if you would subscribe and review the show. You're in for a real treat today. Jennifer Petrilieri is a professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD and the author of Couples That Work, a book that's coming out this week on making a dual career relationship successful. Prior to joining INSEAD, she was a postdoc fellow of organizational behavior at the Harvard Business School. Having lived and worked on three continents, she's now settled in France with her husband and their two children. You are going to love the accent and how she says every amazing word. (laughs) She has spent the last six years studying over 100 couples in a variety of roles and types of relationships from all over the world. And drawing on this research, she highlights the three distinct yet very predictable transitions that all of us go through and offers practical guidance in the form of questions, exercises, activities that we can use to overcome the most pressing challenges we face. From couples in their mid-20s to those in their mid-60s, from heterosexual couples to same-sex couples, this book has something of value to strengthen all of our relationships. I believe that it's going to be the book that I give the most over the years, and I'm starting this week, so make sure you listen after the show to find out how to get a copy from me. Here is my conversation with Jennifer Petrilieri. Are you here to tell us that the secret to successful dual career relationships is not just understanding one another's love languages and then having that carry us through all of our relationship? Is that what you're here to tell us, that there's more to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really important part of it, but it's not the only thing. I mean, I think for too long, we have treated love and work as these separate domains 
um, as if we can be one person in one and one person in the other. And of course, we only have one body, right? We can't do that. And what I find in my research is that the working couples who really do well, who thrive, are ones that can talk about and and really express their desires and ambition, both in work and also in their relationship and their family lives. Everything that you write about in this book, I have felt in my relationship, but I've never had the words to explain what was happening. And now that I've read this book, I want to gift it anytime somebody gets married, whether they have a baby or if they're dealing with a difficult career challenge. So I just want to say kudos on writing a book that's so giftable. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because my my real ambition, my hope for the book is that it changes the conversations, right? The conversations we have with our partners, but also the conversations we have with each other. And I think your reaction is one that I hear from so many people. It's like they know there's something there, but they just didn't have the language and the wherewithal to talk about it. So that's my hope for the book. So I'm really pleased you say that. Yeah, no, I, I felt it very strongly. So I want to quickly get into why this work is so powerful. Your research shows that there are three major transitions that every dual career couple faces and that almost all of us handle these transitions wrong, me included. So can you quickly give us the three pivotal moments for couples and then we'll do a deep dive into each one? Yeah, so there's three transitions and these are the points where the challenges really feel quite intense. So the first happens uh, shortly after we get together in couple and when we face our first major um, challenge together. So whether that's, you know, one of us gets offered a job on the other side of the country and do we move together or do we do we break up? Do we have a long distance relationship? Whether it's, you know, couples who get together later in life, you know, how do we blend our families? It's that point where we can no longer go on with parallel lives and we have to figure out how do we mesh our two careers and life together. So that's the first transition. The second transition is, is more linked to a life stage. So it comes at midlife in our, usually in our 40s, not always. And this is a time when we tend to take stock and reassess. And usually through our 20s and 30s, we've been kind of running, 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 keeping up with expectations, growing our careers, partnering off. Some of us, if we want children, have had children. And then often this is a time when we stop and we think, okay, is this really what I want? And it's a time when we reassess and often face those big existential questions, right? What do I really want out of my life? Is this the path I'm aiming for? And of course, in a partnership, you know, how does that interact with where my couple is? And the third transition is a little bit later in life. And it happens when those commitments that we felt very strongly in our early days, you know, raising children, paying the mortgage, really rapidly rising through our career are often behind us. But we've still got quite a bit of our career left. And there's those real identity questions like who am I now I'm not the rising star I'm not the kind of real hands-on parent um and what do I want to do with the rest of my career and there's questions of legacy and um, and real deep questions of identity at that time so that in a nutshell is the three transition points as I read the book I felt like you were describing almost three different marriages did it feel that way with the couples like you're, you're two completely different people through each of these transitions Absolutely. And I think yes and no. So the part of me that responds absolutely is you can still be married to the same person right. and have three different <laughs> marriages, right? It, for some people, it is three separate marriages. But I think what happens and what I found with the couples I worked with is, is in each transition point, they really needed to renegotiate 
What is our couple all about and how are we going to make this work? And very often they built a new agreement, if I can put it that way, after each transition. Now, this may not mean they made huge radical changes on the outside, but there was certainly a real fundamental shift in the way they related to each other and the way they supported each other. And so after each transition, there was almost a mini honeymoon period, a period of renewal in couples where they were sort of starting on a new path together, even if it was with the same partner and sort of forging off in a new direction. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but because these stages are so different from one another, is this where many couples who are very compatible otherwise find their biggest challenges in their relationship in these three transitions? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting what makes a couple compatible. And I think that was one of the questions I had going in, you know, is there a fundamental way in which we're compatible? And I think we would like to think so, right? We have this lovely image of Prince Charming walks along and they're the one and, um, and that's very romantic. It's not actually the case. You know, couples can work through incredibly difficult challenges together and come out with a very decent, strong relationship. And I think the couples that really work are those who don't look at their relationship in a fatalistic way, like, are we meant for each other or not? They're couples who accept that, you know, to make love work, we need to work at it. And that's okay. That's actually a good thing. And so there's no such thing as a kind of really compatible couple. It's, it's it, are you willing to invest in your relationship with this person or not. I think you're describing fixed mindset versus growth mindset, but as it pertains to relationships. And for me, I was very much a growth mindset person and prided myself. And then I heard Carol Dweck say, you know, this applies to every part of your life, including relationships. And I used to be very fatalistic about my relationship, constantly being like, oh, is it going to work out or is it not? Until I finally learned to say, no, I decide. I decide if it's going to work out. Absolutely. And I think part of it is we're taught from a young age that that's the romantic thing, right? It's romantic to, you know, have this light bulb moment. But, you know, I also find it's actually very romantic to do the working through piece. You know, I think having these conversations with your partner about, you know, what what really matters to us? Where are we going in life? It can be a very romantic exercise. And these are the deep and meaningful conversations that we often crave. And most of us have a ready-made person, you know, in our bed every night we can have these conversations with. And yet it's surprising how few couples from the get-go invest in that. Or just know to talk about it. Like I've always valued my relationship, but I didn't know about these conversations. And my husband and I went through these transitions like doing the best that we could, had we had the information in this book, it would have been a much smoother ride. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting. So when I present the book and present the work, very often two things happen. Immediately people come up to me and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really desperate to have these conversations. I just didn't think of it before. And then what will happen is a couple of days later, I'll get a flurry of emails from people saying, you know, I sat down and I was a bit nervous. You know, I, I thought I wasn't sure my wife would want to talk about this. I wasn't sure my husband would want to talk about this. But actually, it led to an amazing conversation, a real breakthrough in our relationship. So I think you're right. We've just looked at relationships in a very fatalistic way that they should just sort of bob along. And if, if they don't work, then something's wrong with us rather than thinking there's something to invest in. And that's good. That investment is fun to do and it's, and it's, um, it's really worthwhile and fulfilling. 
Okay, let's talk about the first transition because many of the people listening to the show are yet to reach the first transition in their relationships. And in part, I'm like, oh, that's so great that you haven't gone through it. And part of me is like, let me hug you and <laughs> and say like, this is the roughest one, it feels like, because you go from this honeymoon period where you have it all. You have a significant other, you have two careers, you have nothing holding you back from being completely selfish And it's like a magic time, right? Yeah, it is a wonderful time. And there are also wonderful times later on. Full <laughs> of potential, right? Because uh, assuming we're coupling in earlier in life, if we couple later in life, it's a little bit more complex. But even then, it's a period where the love is new, everything's exciting. If we're getting together when we're, we're a bit younger, we have very few responsibilities. And so there is this sense that we can have it all. And then what often happens because of that, everything's going really well. So we don't invest in the conversations. We just assume it's going to carry on. And then something happens. So let me give you an example. You know, one couple I spoke to, the something that happened was that she got offered her absolute dream job, but it was on the other side of the country. And the question they were suddenly facing, and they'd never talked about where they wanted to live, whose career took the lead, anything. And suddenly they were facing this crunch point where she had two weeks to decide, does she move or not? And they were having to cram all of these conversations into two weeks. Does he move with her? Does he look for another job? Do they live apart? You know, do they split up? Where do they go? And this often creates this kind of panic mode situation where we've gone from happily bobbing along, everything's wonderful, to really rabbits in the headlight. How are we going to make this work together? And the biggest mistake we make is we try to get out of the panic zone as quickly as possible. And then we make these short-sighted, usually financially based decisions, which are all wrong. Absolutely. And I think what the, what tricks us here is partly, you know, we have this psychological bias into short-term thinking. I think most of your listeners will know that. But we are also bombarded with information on the practicalities. And this really hooks us. You know, I'm, you know, we've all read the books and the magazine articles on, you know, this is how you should divide the chores and this is how you should make decisions. And what that does is it really focuses our thinking on, if I come back to the couple I just talked about, like, who earns the most money? Is it financially worth us? moving or not. Now, on the one hand, these issues seem sensible, but they're really a trap because you know, none of us work for money alone, right? None of us are really interested in just who does the washing up versus who. You know, what's happening underneath are really questions of power, questions of respect, questions of support in the couple. And what happens is when we focus on that practical aspect, we miss all of the stuff that's underneath. And of course, this is the stuff that's really driving what happens in our couples. We have this episode this season with Denise Schull all about how trying to be rational in your decisions and hiding from your true feelings almost always leads to bad decisions that you end up regretting later. And, and you talk a lot about resentment that can come from ignoring your feelings during these times of transition. Absolutely. And that's not to say the practical aspects are not important. Of course they are. But they've got to follow the conversation around how do we really feel about this? How is this going to pan out in the long term? And what's really important to us as a couple? Does this fit with our values? Does this fit with what matters to us? Um, and it's really got to be that way around as opposed to practicalities first. That's the biggest trap couples, that's the biggest mistake couples make in this first transition. 
Jason, I love talking about all these books that I'm reading with people that I meet, but there's nothing I love talking more about than my brand new fitness tracker, The Whoop. I love this thing so much. I cannot believe they answered our emails that we loved it so much we wanted to talk about it on the show and they decided to sponsor the show. We talk about it all day long. I mean, the worst thing that happens is when somebody asks me about it and I keep talking and they're like, okay, I'm good. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you some more. And then you're like, let me show you on my phone. Let me show you. Okay, so here's what it is. This fitness tracker measures your daily strain, how much you're exerting yourself, your sleep, and your recovery. And it was designed for professional athletes, but it is doing wonders for us and our relationship. Yeah, like the other day, uh, you were starting to get sick, but you didn't know it yet. You were kind of like, I don't feel good. And usually I would be like, eh, is she really getting sick? But instead, you showed me the numbers and I was like, she is definitely getting sick. And I just like took true all day. That my recovery was so low, it was in the red. It means you shouldn't exert yourself. You shouldn't overstrain yourself. This thing was designed so that athletes didn't injure themselves by working too much on days when they just didn't have it. And that's exactly what it does for you. It gives you like objective measurements about how you're feeling and like how your spouse is feeling. It's completely awesome. Here's some fun facts. People who wear the whoop, they have improved sleep. They drink less alcohol, they have fewer injuries, and they have a reduced resting heart rate and better recovery. It's just like gamifying my life. I love it so much. I love it. And they're giving our audience 15% off. You just go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com. And the code that you're going to use is Diana, obviously. It's W-H-O-O-P dot com, whoop. There it is, 15% off for the new Strap 3.0 that has new upgrades, new hardware, five-day battery life, unbelievable heart rate monitoring, and you get 15% off. Seriously, it is so cool. Jason, how was your day-to-day? It was really great, except there was a period where I was working really hard, and I didn't eat until I got like famished. And then I ate a lot of street corn because that's what was available to me at that time, (laughs) which I'm pretty sure does not count as like fruits and vegetables that I need. You know, 90% of Americans do not eat the daily recommended servings of fruits and vegetables. That's why I went with a balanced superfood shot today. Ah, yes. The balanced superfood shot provides half of your daily fruits and vegetables. Each one of these tiny bottles is crammed with $5 of organic produce. And it's in this convenient package. I have a short trip next week. You better believe my backpack is going to be filled with these because no matter what awaits for me on the road, I know that at least I will be getting the nutrients that I need throughout the day. We worked out today. So went with the turmeric blend because it's for inflammation. Yeah, they have an immunity blend. They have a foundation blend, which is green and just feels oh so right. (laughs) Yeah, it's like right on brand. (laughs) We're running low on the supply in our house. And the way that I know that a product is good is when I miss it. Like we're all out of the green foundation blend and we're waiting for the next package to yeah. come. Yeah, like we're, we have this balance of like Diana just drinks it. However, I think it's good either way, but I really like it cold. So it's like we're running out of it in the fridge. But I miss it. Yeah, I no. wish I had it to take. I'm starting to salivate right now. <laughs> I am too. What more can we say about that? You have to try out the Balance Superfood Shot. You go to the website. The code is Diana. You get 30% off. So that's superfoodshot.co. 
It's .co. They're saving you time and letters. You don't even need the M at the end. And then the code is Diana for 30% off. So you introduce a tool for us to use, a couple's contract, and it almost makes me feel like a pre-mortem. So I teach organizations to implement these on projects, to talk about everything that could go wrong and prepare for it. And, you know, statistically, it significantly increases their likelihood of success on a project. And, and that's how I felt about this couple's contracting. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because this is partly from personal experience of me having done it with my husband, but also partly from the, the multiple stories I heard from couples. And this contracting is really a way of, of sitting down with your partner and thinking through three areas. The first is you know, what really matters to us, really, right? Maybe it's a specific career ambition. Maybe it's about having time to pursue a certain activity. Maybe it's financial stability. But what is it that matters to us as a couple? This is really important because this is, if you like, the yardstick by which we measure our lives, so if you're clear about this, it's a lot easier to think through, okay, what are the things we want to pursue as a couple? And what are the things, quite frankly, that don't really matter to us and we can let go of? The second is, what are the lines we're not willing to cross? What are the boundaries? Now, this is really important because it restricts our choices. Now, this sounds a little bit counterintuitive because we're often brought up to think more choices are better, right? But of course, the research shows the opposite. The more choices we have, the harder it is to choose and the more likely we are to regret our choices. So when we know those boundaries, for example, you know, we only want to live on the East Coast. We're not even going to consider jobs outside the East Coast. You know, for us, neither of us can really take a job with more than 20% travel. Or maybe it's a, a line around your relationship. You know, we're never going to take jobs that live apart. If we know what those lines are, it's a lot easier to make decisions. And the final area and the area that's harder for couples to talk about is, okay, what are we afraid of? But this is a really important conversation because what I found in my couples time and time again was the things that caused conflicts were often things that they were afraid of happening that were not necessarily based in facts, but they were worried about them unfolding. So let me give you an example from a couple in the first transition. And this concerns, you know, do we have children or not? You know, it's a newly married couple they were both on the surface saying they were keen to have children. But when I spoke to them separately, they had really different stories. So he traveled a lot in the week. He had a very mobile job. And she said, you know, I really want children, but I'm putting it off as long as I can because I know that I will be the primary caretaker, right? There's just no way out of it. He's traveling pretty much Monday through Thursday. And when I talked to him, he, he had it all sorted out. He was like, I can't wait to have children. And of course, as soon as she's pregnant, I'm going to give up this job and take a job. Location-wise, and of course, I was initially sat there thinking, "My goodness, how can they have so different views?" But of course, she was so afraid of this being a reality, she avoided talking about it, and he was so sure it wasn't an issue, he never brought it up. And so there was this conflict being caused in their relationship, and neither of them could really work out what it was about. But it was really because they weren't discussing what were their plans, and she wasn't revealing her fears. And of course, there was no need for that conflict if they'd have talked about it up front. I like the section in the book where you talk about, uh, you know, the faults of making economic-based decisions and how oftentimes what we think we're deciding on is actually not what we're actually deciding on. So uh, you, you think that if you choose to have children, you're going to take a couple of years off and head right back to work and you are making decisions about 
a part of your life that you actually have a lot of blind spots in. Like you've never been there. So you're making, it made me think about my husband and I were deciding whether he should run for a political office. And we had all these conversations about whether or not he should do it. And then a year afterwards, we were like, those conversations were a joke because we had really no idea what we were making decisions on. And you had some really interesting data to back up, uh, you know, how a lot of our decision-making is, is short-sighted and, and oftentimes we, we don't understand the full ramifications of what we're deciding on. Yeah. And I think it's difficult because of course you can never know hundred percent the full ramifications, right? That's it. That's an impossible ideal. But what we tend to do is we focus on the short term. And I think the childcare thing is a really interesting example because there's so much data on the, the finances around it. Now, of course, some women really want to spend time full time at home with their children for a number of years. And that's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are many other women who take that decision in part because they kind of fancy it. But at the same time, they look at their paycheck at the end of the month and they look at what they're spending on childcare and they think it just doesn't make sense. Now, that is uh, in the short term, that looks like it makes sense. But we know in the long term, it really doesn't make sense because, of course, we're destroying our earning potential. Um, and even if we spend almost all our salary on childcare for a number of years, we're still going to be financially better off afterwards. Now, of course, it's not just a financial decision, but it's one of those decisions that we can see very clearly. If we just focus on the short term, the obvious thing is one course of action. But if we think a bit longer term, it's not so straightforward what we should do. And oftentimes we make these decisions black and white, like should I take two or three years off or should I not take any time off? And you point out that you, you can actually set yourself up to get back to work much easier if you think about the long term, like, hey, I'll need something to be doing. Maybe I'll do it for a couple hours a month, but it'll be a continuous place on my resume of what I've been doing for the last three years that makes me much more employable when I decide to return back to work. You know, absolutely. And I think we have a benefit today that our mothers never had in that the gig economy is rising, right? The rise of the freelancer. And in most of our professions, there are some opportunities to do some kind of freelance work and project-based work, et cetera, that can keep us ticking over. So in many ways, we're blessed. But as you say, the trap is we see it black and white, either I'm full-time on or I'm full-time off. But we're living in a world where we have lots more options than that nowadays. And I read the Harvard Business Review article that you wrote about how employers should be thinking about this transition. So could you share with us, you know, if you're the manager of somebody who's trying to make this difficult decision, what can you do to make sure that you can keep this incredible talent long term? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two keys. One is not making assumptions. And what happens within organizations, of course, is managers tend to make gendered assumptions. They tend to assume that the guys will push on and, you know, man up and it'll be fine. And they assume that the women will either want to stop or take a step back. You know, in this day and age, those assumptions are very often incorrect both ways. We know now that men, um, compared to their fathers and their grandfathers, are really very invested and really want to spend time with their children more than any other generation of men has. So it's not true that by default, a man will just want to power on through. Likewise, we know that couples have all sorts of different structures in terms of, you know, who's the breadwinner? Do they share everything equally? So it's a, it's a false assumption to assume that women will per se want to step back. 
after you've dropped that assumption, what that means is it's much more important than it was in the past that as a manager, you really have those conversations with your talented people to find out what do they need and what do they want and how can you best support it. Now, I think the fear managers have is that people will respond by saying, well, I want to work two days a week, you know, and occasionally there are people who do that. But what I found in my research is people working couples often want quite a small amount of flexibility, but that flexibility makes a big difference. So it might be exactly the same working hours, but starting early and finishing early or starting late and finishing late. It might be the option to work at home one or two days a week or finish early every day and pick up again in the evening when the kids are in bed. We're not very often talking about massive flexible work policies. We're often talking about small things around the margin that make a huge difference for working couples. Wow. And I, I just feel like the act of asking the question can, can do so much to solidify that relationship. Absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes managers are afraid of, you know, what, not wanting to look biased or, or something like this. But I think the easy way to do that is to say, you know, I don't want to assume anything. I know times are changing. And in the past, we may have assumed X, Y, Z. But I'd really like to hear from you, you know, how you think we can make this work together. And I've never heard anyone reacting badly to that kind of approach. That's very, very powerful. Okay, let's talk about the second transition. When does this usually happen? And what's going on here? Yeah, so the second transition usually happens when we are past that career acceleration phase. So we usually happen sometime between the late 30s and and late 40s, early 50s. And it it happens at a time when we really stop to think, um, you know, is this really the path I want to go moving forward? And this is you know, it's rather universal. And the reason is that almost all of us from in our 20s and 30s, we're following a path that's partly dictated by our environment, right? So for example, you know, I live in France and in France, if you're, if you're a smart kid, you should be an engineer. So a lot of smart kids become engineers, or maybe your father or mother was a doctor and you become a doctor to follow in the family footsteps, or maybe all the the smart kids in your college who graduated went into banking or to to consulting. And we, we more, all of us to a more or less extent follow the herd now, in some way, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We're following, a, you know, some social expectations, that's fine. But what happens in that middle period of life is we start to question that and we start to think, okay, is this really my path? Or how much of this is my path? And in, in what way do I want to reorient it? And I think the mistake people make here in thinking it's all about what I do on the external side. So I should never have become an engineer. I should have become this. But a lot of it, of course, is about our inner change. You know, who am I really? And and therefore, what's important for me to do? And this can be a time which is very difficult emotionally in couples and in individuals. It's a time of real inner turmoil. And I think what happens is when we see our partner in this inner turmoil, it's very easy for us to interpret this as a relational problem. Right. We think, oh, there must be something wrong with me. What am I what am I doing that's making my partner unhappy? Is this my fault? Is it something about the relationship? And that is where partners can get into real trouble. Do you have any data of whether this is more likely to happen to men or women first? Yeah, it really doesn't. There doesn't seem to be a strong pattern. There really doesn't seem to be a strong pattern. But what does tend to happen is we impact each other. So oftentimes, once one person starts to go into this questioning mode, the other person will very quickly 
follow suit. So it's not, you know, there isn't a robust pattern that it's men first and women or vice versa. But there is a pattern that once one of you falls into this hole, the other one quickly topples in as well. And we usually don't react well, as you said, we think that it's about us and the relationship. And that means that we're not reacting in the way that we should. Yeah. And so what we can do, of course, is we can get defensive. And we've all done this. We all like to think it's the other people who are defensive, but we can all become defensive when we feel concerned, right? We feel threatened that there's something wrong in our relationship. And at these periods, this time of questioning, that's exactly what we don't need, right? What we need instead is that support and that trust that we can move away from the relationship and away from the safety net and go and explore new things and experiment with different options and think, okay, if this path I'm on right now isn't quite right, what might be the ways I need to adjust it? So it's quite counterintuitive at a time when we're feeling threatened and we want to keep our partner close. What we actually need to do is the opposite. Is this a time to open up the filing cabinet and get out that couple contract and go over it and and revise it? Absolutely. I think, I mean, partly, and I would hope you've done it before now anyway, (laughs) part of the couple contract is about developing a habit, a habit of regularly having these conversations. Now, I'm not talking about every week, but certainly once or twice a year, a kind of check-in and definitely at a major transition point. It's really important that it becomes if you like a habit of the relationship, a way of relating an important part of the conversations you have ongoing. And what I find is in couples who do that, of course, it doesn't make them immune to the challenges. You know, most of us still go through this period, but it just makes it a lot easier to navigate as a couple because we're very clear that we're on the same page and we're understanding where we are. And it's easier to tolerate the other person's distress when we can understand where that's coming from. So Jason and I went to lunch this week and we did our first couples contract and it was amazing. Every week there's something from your conversation for your podcast that like changes my life. (laughs) I mean, we have epiphanies once a week and this week it was making our relationship better and to talk about all the things that we were afraid of in relation to our professional goals and careers. And we came up with all kinds of things that we had never talked about. Yeah, it was good. Also, the tacos were outstanding. Tacos were fantastic. Now, we should be having these kinds of frank conversations in every part of our life, including with our bank. Very well done. Nice transition, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know I love NBKC Bank. I called them and asked them to be a sponsor on the show because of the relationship I have. And if you think about the relationship you have with your current bank and all the things that you would say in that conversation, what you would want in your couple's contract, there's no way you would still be in a relationship with them. They charge you fees. And if you were to talk about all the things you're afraid of, you'd say, I'm afraid of paying fees for everything, fees for overdraft fees, for uh, taking money out of an ATM. NBKC doesn't do any of that stuff. And then if you told your bank that, they'd be like, oh, we're a bank, we do fees. And then they'd leave. And then NBKC would come in and just slide right into that booth across from you and be like, I'm here to talk over lunch about whatever you're afraid of. NBKC is an equal housing lender and member FDIC, but really they care. They care about their customers. If you want to know what a different bank looks like and feels like, you just go to NBKC.com slash Diana and you'll see how they are approaching the relationship so much differently than your current bank. If you're thinking about opening a new account, if you're thinking about the fact that you should just stop paying all these fees, you should check out nbkc.com slash Diana. 
And you'll find out the box of amazing professional AF stuff that they're going to send to you just for opening an account. Stuff that's not available anywhere else. Also, no fee for the box. No fee for the box. The hate fees over at MBKC. You know, we're all about habit transformation here on this show. And one of the things that I, I think is really important is if you, if you want to develop a new habit, you need to attach it to something you're already doing. So, well, if you don't want to ruin your anniversary by having this conversation on your anniversary, maybe do it on the anniversary of your first date or some other date that's important to you as a couple. That's like an annual event to kind of talk about these things. I totally agree. Although I would challenge it will not ruin your anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) So what I find is people can often be a little bit nervous if they've not had these conversations before, but a hundred percent of the time in my experience, they come out of the other end wanting more. Um, Because I think all of us crave for these, you know, meaningful conversations, this meaningful connection. Now, not every night, you know, there are some nights we just want to turn on Netflix and watch a movie. But certainly, you know, all of us, and I'm sure your listeners are the same, these are the conversations that feed our soul, right, that keep us going. And to develop a habit of having them is very powerful in a couple. And just to be clear, you're saying these transitions happen in every single relationship. Like, there's no avoiding this. You can only be prepared for it. You can run, but you can't hide. And I think what happens sometimes, and actually it's interesting, this happens a lot at the second transition, is people try to hide. They try, they often say to themselves, okay, my life is pretty good overall. I should just ignore these doubts and this questioning. And of course, as you know, what happens is those questions and doubts just bottle up. And then when we do lift the lid, it feels even more kind of big and frightening to to look at. So there are plenty of couples that try to hide, but um, that's not going to (laughs) work. Okay. And let's talk about the third transition. What's going on here? Yeah. The third transition, as I said, comes at a time when our roles in life are shifting. So maybe if we had children, they've left home. We're no longer, you know, the bright young thing in the organization. People are looking to us as the mentor, the the kind of, um, you know, the steady pair of hands. And it's also a time when our ambitions broaden. So for many of us, you know, in our 30s or like me in my 40s, we tend to have, you know, two main obsessions, our career and our partner stroke family if we have if we have children. By the time we get a little later in life, those ambitions and our, our horizons really broaden and we start thinking about, you know, legacy. How do I want to contribute to my community? Um, the importance of passing something on to the younger generation, whether that's mentoring people at work, you know, training people, that sort of thing become really important. And our ambitions for our career change. Now, that's not to say everyone wants to retire and very few of us can retire early. But it's a time when people want to try new things and really broaden out. So it's quite a big shift. And it's also a really shift, big shift in a couple, especially if you're a couple who've had children and you've spent the last 20 years on this project of raising children and suddenly that project has gone to college. Then this question is, who are we now, right? Now we're not these active parents. Now we're not this kind of young up and coming couple. There's these real deep questions of, of identity and purpose, if you like, that come up at this stage. Somebody I know has taken up professional boxing uh, after her kids went off to college. So that's one way to go about it. Yeah. And we say that and we laugh, but what I found was that many couples came up with wild and wonderful things to do at this stage. For some of them, it was a return to their roots, right? At taking back up something they did 
you know, in their 20s, in their 30s. For some couples, it was starting something together. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean working full time together. But many couples at this stage had lovely stories about having side projects together, whether it's, you know, work doing some voluntary work or whether it's, you know, a little entrepreneurial project on the side, some freelancing on the side. You know, it's a time which these possibilities open up and people can do real fun things. So, Jennifer, as you meet somebody and it's their, you know, wedding day, they're just getting excited to start on this journey. You don't want to be like, hey, watch out. It's going to be scary. What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's starting out on their professional couple journey? Yeah. So if I have one piece of advice, it would be to sit down tonight and take some time to invest in those conversation around what really matters to us. What are the lines we're not going to cross? And what are the things we're worried about? Now, of course, you don't need to agree on everything. You need to find some common ground. But having that stake in the sand and revisiting it frequently is really the biggest investment you can make in your couple. And if you make that investment, of course, you know, life is life, right? We're, gonna, we're all going to hit challenges. But it can also be incredibly rewarding for a couple to work through these challenges together and come out of the other side. So I don't think it's a story of, you know, bad things are going to happen, although, of course, life throws things at us. It's that if we invest in our relationship, you know, those challenging moments can also be real opportunities for growth in a couple. And, you know, if we can frame it that way and think of our relationships in the long term that way, we can have a really fulfilling and meaningful life together. You know, one of the biggest pushbacks to doing a pre-mortem inside of a corporate environment is that people don't want to be seen as a negative person or that they're doubting the venture. And I could see some couples saying, well, I don't want to bring up the things that I'm afraid of because I don't want to express doubt in my relationship. Why is it important that they get over that concern? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that concern. Of course, it feels scary at the beginning. Of course it does. And at the same time, it's important to recognize that, you know, everyone has some element of doubt about their relationship. Now, it may not be doubt that you're going to make it, but we all have certain fears and it may not even be about the other person. Let me give you a personal example. So, um, you know, my husband's from Italy. We're a cross-cultural marriage, you know, different religion, different language, different culture. And, you know, I think one of our worries going in was like, how do the two families of origin interact with each other, right? And talking that through and thinking about how we can make that work has really worked in our relationship. Now, that wasn't like a fundamental doubt about us as a couple, but there's all sorts of peripheral things that happen as well. And if we can talk these through, we can really help stop them happening and kind of, you know, stop them appearing. It's almost like, you know, when you keep thinking about not tripping over, you trip over, right? And, um, but if you sort of have it out and talk about it, you're not going to fall. And it's that, that's the idea behind it. What is the biggest impact this research has had on your relationship? That's a great question. So I said, I actually say in the acknowledgements of the book, this is the longest love letter I've ever written. (laughs) (laughs) To the way in which I mean it. I think in a, in a couple of different ways. I think, I mean, inevitably, it's a kind of therapy, right? You you hear all these other couples, you see these patterns, and you think about, you know, are we doing all, all of this stuff? And certainly, there's conversations we've had 
that wouldn't have happened without this research or that that happened more um, with this research. I also think for me, some of the touching things has been to look at those couples who are at the, the stage after us. So we're sort of mid 40s now, but looking at those couples in their 50s and 60s and the things they're doing has been a real inspiration and has opened up conversations for us around what's going to happen in our lives in that stage. What are the things we're going to focus on, which has been quite fun thinking a little bit more future term for us. Jennifer, you say at the beginning of the book that most career advice is given to an individual and most relationship advice is usually just about the personal interactions between the two. This is the first work about the professional advice to the couple. And I just want to thank you for sharing it with our listeners and with the world. Thank you very much. That was awesome. And here at Professional AF, we are constantly trying new things, experimenting. And so I have with me here, Jesse Jacob, our producer for the show. Jesse, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Everybody, Thank please you. welcome Thank Jesse you. online to the show. Now, I have Jesse here because we want to encourage you to be having conversations about the content that you're consuming. It's not enough just to listen to it. It's going to go in one ear, out the other. But if you don't reflect on what you heard and talk about it with us on Professional AF Podcast Insiders, the Facebook group, or share the show with your friend and then have these conversations, it's not going to impact your life in any way. So don't make the last 37 minutes a waste of time take two minutes to really think about how it impacts your life. And so I have Jesse here to model it for you. Jesse, how did you feel about the show? Oh my gosh, it was amazing and super applicable to my life. And I think I think about my relationship in a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and how that's a choice. Oh, it was the biggest takeaway. I, like I said in the show, thought of myself as such a big growth mindset person. I walked around very egotistical about it. And then once I heard Carol Dweck talk about, oh, it also applies to your relationships, I've been like, I don't do that at all. Like, that's not at all how I think about my relationship. What else? What else did you learn and take away? My other takeaway from this episode was how you don't even need to be married to someone to be able to go through some of these challenging points in a relationship and how crucial these are, these transitions are for every relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's just so applicable to every relationship. And she gives you the talking points to have these conversations. Jason and I had our very first couples contract and it was amazing. I cannot wait to have the conversation again. I mean, it just feels so different than many of the conversations we've been having. How about you? What's the first thing you're going to talk about? I love it. Um, I want to have like, I want this to become a habit. Yeah. Um, so that way, you know, you're regularly having these conversations. I think you should attach it to something that's already happening in your relationship. Like I said, like the anniversary of your first date or some big relationship conversation to remind you to do it on a regular basis. If it takes you a year to get to it again, I, I feel like we want to have these like on a regular basis. I know. I was thinking like monthly. Monthly, I think it's is good. That's realistic. I hope you will share your takeaways uh, with me and Jesse either on Twitter or in that podcast insiders group on Facebook. We'd love to see your comments and what you thought of the show. Jennifer's book is coming out this week. And so we're giving out some copies. I think this is going to be the number one book that I gift to people because it's so applicable to everybody's life. So make sure that you comment on Twitter and on Facebook, how much you enjoyed the show and tag me. We're going to give away a number of copies of the book. All the instructions and rules will be online. 
and I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Diana Kander here with Jesse Jacob, reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. We'll talk to you soon.